Over the next few weeks, we are focusing on the birth of Christ, the arrival of the Messiah, as foretold, as longed for through the prophet Isaiah. So we'll spend a few, uh, each week, spend our time in just a few verses from this beautiful book of Isaiah. And today, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. We're just going to look at verses 10 through 17 together. So if you have your Bible open and ready, follow along in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 17. It's also printed in your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, there are some that look just like this, so you know that you'll be following in the same one, either on the shelf in the back in the foyer area or one right at the back of the sound booth. You can grab one. There's plenty for you to take home and take extras and give them to your family. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask that God would plant this word in our hearts. God, as we Get excited about this Christmas season and sing these familiar hymns and songs reminding us of the arrival of the King. I pray that you would show us even more how spectacular he is, how miraculous his arrival was, how powerful he is even as an infant born of a virgin. He points us and brings us into the presence of the mighty God, creator of the universe. This isn't just a time to fall into habits and old traditions and and to stress, full of anxiety, trying to, to fit into all of our family's plans and make sure everyone is happy and, and content and taken care of. God, there's so much that we bear during these holiday seasons. God, we ask that you would plant your truth in our hearts and bring it to life in us in order, God, that we may trust the virgin-born Son of God, our Lord Jesus. May he reign on our hearts as king and lead us to faithfulness no matter what struggles or trials we face, no matter what exile we must endure, that we can have confidence that our God reigns because of the sign he gave us, the arrival of his virgin-born son. May he be glorified 
in our lives, and especially now in our time of worship. Amen. Would you rather have everyone you know know your thoughts or everyone you know have access to your internet history? Would you rather find a rat in your kitchen or a roach in your bed? Would you rather get a paper cut every time you turn a page or bite your tongue every time you eat? Would you rather clean your toilet with your toothbrush or clean the floor with your tongue? Would you rather always have wet socks or always have a small rock in your shoe? None of these sound very delightful. This would-you-rather game, if you've ever played that, is kind of a fun conversation game that provides these two ridiculous alternatives and no other way out of them. And it's fun because you get to get to know your friend that you're playing with, your friends that are playing along, what their comforts are, what their interests and, and preferences are, but it doesn't really matter which you choose. It doesn't change your life very dramatically, if at all. But sometimes life presents us with circumstances where it seems we are thrust right into a very real and terrible game of would you rather. The choice feels like no matter which one, which direction you go, your life will be dramatically altered. It's not a fun game. And it causes anxiety to build up and many people who make a choice in this would you rather game of real life make a tragic choice that leads them into further despair, into a downward, downward spiral? Now, it's, it's very rare that you really do only have two choices. This is what we call a false dilemma. You think that there's only two options, but you just can't see the many other ways out because you're so blind, you're so focused on just these two things presented right before your face. But when you realize that God is sovereign, you know there's got to be other ways out. God is in control. He's good. If that's true, then there's no circumstance in your life that you have to feel like there are only two choices into despair. God always has a way out. In our text today from Isaiah 7, King Ahaz is presented with a false dilemma. Generations before him, the kingdom of Israel split into two, a northern kingdom which kept the name Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom had abandoned God, fallen into all kinds of idolatrous compromise with the neighboring nations. The southern kingdom kind of was on this roller coaster ride of sometimes faithful, sometimes rebellious. And King Ahaz is in one of those low times. He is one of the worst kings of Judah. And during all of this time, another kingdom nearby, the kingdom of Assyria, was growing in strength. And they were sending their fearsome army all over the region, destroying entire peoples. And their next move was into the promised land to take out God's people. The northern kingdom tried making some alliances with some smaller neighboring nations so that they could fight back against Assyria. 
And they wanted Judah to join their alliance. And they told King Ahaz, if you don't join our alliance, we're going to come and force it upon you anyway. So you've got a choice, fight against us or fight alone against Assyria. Ahaz is stuck in a dilemma. Would you rather battle against Israel or Assyria? Would you rather try to make an alliance with Israel or an alliance with Assyria? But this is a false dilemma. God had told Ahaz that neither of them had to be a problem. He didn't need to make an alliance with either of them because Judah was already allied with God and God would fight both of them for Ahaz. And to assure Ahaz of this promise, God offered him a sign, proof that he would be with them. The sign was the miraculous birth of a redeemer. God told Ahaz, your only escape is a virgin-born son of God. That all seems so impossible. It appeared quite foolish. Ahaz is dealing with serious threats right here. And this is, Isaiah shows up and wants to play some religious games. Like what you say really has, to mat, really has any difference to make in this circumstance I find myself in. This is how we often feel at times. You might be dealing with some real challenges in life. And someone just tells you, you need to trust God. Well, thanks, but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense with this anxiety I'm feeling about my circumstances. But that attitude is giving into the false dilemma. And so the promise is the same to us. Your only escape is the virgin-born Son of God. So in our text, we're going to see from Ahaz's example where we ought to look for help when we are faced with our own dilemmas. In verses 10 to 12, first we see the, the blind stubbornness of Ahaz his, in his refusal to see outside of his immediate problem. And then in verses 13 to 16, God gives him undeserved mercy. God has promised all of David's descendants a king who would redeem the people and reign forever in peace. God offers Ahaz a sign that that promise still stands. Yet in verse 17, we see the result of Ahaz rejecting the promise, striving to solve the dilemma on his own, self-inflicted judgment. His own choice will come around and be the cause of his own demise. So let's look at this text. Let's go back to verses 10 through 12, and we'll look more closely at Ahaz's blind stubbornness. We'll read him again. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord, Yahweh, to the test. So in the few verses that we skipped over leading up to this, Isaiah is bringing the word of God to Ahaz and assure, assures him, Ahaz, you are, you are facing a false dilemma. There are more than just these two options, facing Israel or Assyria. God has promised to protect his people who are faithful to him. When you just simply worship him and hold one another in, in the community accountable to his righteousness. 
Ahaz doesn't need to make any alliance with a foreign nation because he already has an alliance with God, the king of all kings. There's another way out, Ahaz. God promises that in a matter of years, the threat will be gone. Within a couple of generations, Israel won't even exist anymore. Isaiah has come to Ahaz with some hope. And he tells Ahaz, just ask for a sign. You don't believe me? You don't believe these confident assertions I'm giving you? Ask God for a sign and he will work a miracle through me to confirm that my words are his. Now, typically, asking for a sign would indicate a lack of faith. You're not trusting that God has spoken clearly. Like Gideon laying out a fleece, God told him, I will help you. Well, okay, maybe if you do this, then I'll trust you. And then again the next day, maybe if you do this, then I'll trust you. But at this time, God was kind to offer a sign to Ahaz because Ahaz was really in a tricky spot. The pressure of foreign nations surrounding him, people all over claiming to have words from God. It wasn't quite clear what to do. He couldn't see clearly. So how could Ahaz know how to trust God? Whom to trust? So God offers a sign to assure Ahaz that his word was truth through Isaiah. He just needs to humble himself and ask. He can ask for anything. Anything as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. That's, that's just a, a matter, a way of saying, look, God owns everything as far down as you can go, as high as you can go. He has control over everything in between. Whatever you ask, God will show that he has power over all of it. He has authority over all of creation. He can handle these threats from foreign kings and their armies. But notice Ahaz's response. I will not. <laughs> the God of the universe just told you he will protect you and he will provide an incredibly powerful miracle to confirm that protection. He's given you permission to ask anything you want. And you say, no thanks. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. Well, now he's quoting scripture. Sounds rather pious. Maybe he's doing something good here. Well, what does he mean? He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. Moses writes, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. At Massa. That's where the people in the wilderness grumbled and complained because they were so thirsty, but there was not anything to drink. Massa is where the people rebelled against Moses' authority given to him by God. But God showed through this powerful sign that he was with Moses in his leadership. He allowed Moses to strike the rock and water comes pouring out to give, to satisfy everybody's thirst. What more proof do you need that you better listen to Moses because God is working through him? The water was a sign. And now God is giving Ahaz a similar opportunity to give peace to all the people, assuring them God is with them and he's working through Ahaz. But Ahaz interprets the whole thing wrong. He thinks he's testing God by asking for a sign when God told him, no, you are the appointed leader. 
I'm giving the whole nation a sign that they are you, I'm working through you. By refusing the sign, Ahaz is actually showing that he's much more like the rebellious Israelites in the wilderness than he is like faithful Moses. And he's dressing up his faithlessness in scripture to make it look like he's righteous. In our own sin, we do this as well. We ignore the the clear thing God has called us to do. And we give an excuse that sounds rather pious. We tell ourselves, we need to clean up our lives before we can come to church. You know, you got it backwards. We refuse to receive help from somebody because we just don't want to be a burden on others. You need the help. We don't engage with our kids because we have so much work to do to provide for them. We don't pursue our spouse because we're so busy taking care of the home and the kids that we leave behind that priority. Or we don't prioritize worship because I've got really important work to do at my job. What we're doing is covering our call to a simple, ordinary faith through worship and accountability with one another. And we, re- we cover it with a more complex web of self-righteous unbelief. Like Ahaz, it's false piety. It's, but it's exactly what Isaiah, God told Isaiah would happen. If you go back one chapter... Isaiah has this vision of God in chapter 6. He sees the throne room of God. He sees God in all his glorious holiness on the throne. And he says, ah, I'm going to die. I just saw God with my own eyes. But God provides atonement. He cleanses Isaiah. And then he calls him to ministry. You are going to be my prophet. Go into the land and proclaim my truth to the king." But interestingly, his ministry is not going to be a fruitful one. In verses 9 and 10, it says he's going to go to a people who have ears but can't hear. They have eyes but they can't see. They have hearts that can't understand. This message that Isaiah brings is only going to make them more blind and deaf. This is their judgment for refusing to trust God. This is what God's offer of a sign is doing to Ahaz. It's hardening his heart. Ahaz is the first example of this judgment Isaiah is bringing. Isaiah came to bring truth and hope to him, but he refuses to listen, so it becomes judgment. He doubles down on his idolatry, effectively saying, I got this. I appreciate the offer, God, but I've got some real solutions that I've figured out. And I'll let you know if I need more help. And with that, he seals his own fate. But God is not done with his people. Ahaz may be stubborn and blind, but God made promises to keep. He will be faithful to them. And so he offers to pour out his undeserved mercy anyway. Let's look back at verses 13 to 16. And he said... Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you, may, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. No longer Isaiah performing the sign, God's going to do it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So first, God's response to Ahaz is just calling out his sin. Ahaz has been a terrible king. Throughout his reign, he oppressed his people. He compromised God's law. He spread idolatrous worship throughout the land. He desecrated the temple. He even offered one of his own children as a sacrifice to the false god Moloch. God has given him so many opportunities to repent, including this one, this clear invitation to repentance, but he refused. God told him, it's bad enough that your leadership over this land hurts other people, but now you are actively working against my plans to redeem my people. So judgment must come. But God doesn't immediately bring judgment upon Ahaz. He actually allows him to live. In fact, he's going to live even a dozen or so more years, and he's going to enjoy great peace but it's a false peace because he made a treaty with Assyria. He chose to fight against Israel with Assyria. Assyria agreed they won't fight with Judah as long as Judah remains faithful, loyal to them. Sure, Assyria is not going to destroy the kingdom like they did all the other nations, but now Israel has become a servant to the king of Assyria. They have to pay heavy tribute to him. And in order to afford this heavy tribute, Ahaz goes into the temple, clears out the treasury, and pays that to the king of Assyria. He starts taking apart all of the temple furniture to pay the king of Assyria with its gold. It seemed like his plan had worked because Israel or Judah was experiencing much peace. But Ahaz had exchanged the provision and protection of God for the provision and protection of a weak, frail, prideful king. Judgment is surely to come. But still, despite Ahaz's idolatry, God will keep his promises. Even though Ahaz didn't want the sign, God will give it anyway. Not to Ahaz, but to the remnant, the faithful ones who will have to endure the fallout from Ahaz's wickedness. The nation is going to fall into judgment, but God will keep pouring out undeserved mercy with a miracle beyond any miracle anyone has ever seen. No king will be able to take credit for this salvation. It will be clearly from God. Verse 14 says, A boy will be born from a virgin. And it will be so miraculous that it will indicate God is with his people. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us, providing for us, protecting us. Yet this boy won't immediately be this powerful warrior who shows up and by force puts all of the neighboring nations into submission. Even before he reaches maturity, still just eating basic childlike things, curds and honey, God will remove these threats from Israel and the other nations. Because this boy's mission is more than just resolving some conflict between Israel and Judah. This boy's mission is to the whole world. Who would this boy be? Who could fit this description? 
For thousands of years, people have debated who was the one Isaiah was telling us about. Was it Isaiah's son back in chapter 7, verse 3? His name is Shir Jashub. Was it him? His name means a remnant shall return. That sounds like hope. That's a great promise. But it couldn't be him because the promise was for a future child to be born. He was already born, so that doesn't seem very miraculous. It's not much of a sign. Maybe it would be Isaiah's next born son in chapter 8, verse 3. He has another son named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Means this kid will be made fun of in school. Actually, it means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Well, that sounds like more judgment. Plus, if he's Isaiah's second son, then his wife has already had a child and it's not a virgin being giving birth. Sure, it could be a sign. It could be an indication that God was doing something, but that doesn't seem like it's really miraculous. And some people argue that maybe you're expecting too much because the word translated virgin literally just means young woman. And, and that is true, but the idea is that she's a young woman who's just entering her, her maturity, her ability to get married. So of course she hasn't had a child. This doesn't describe Isaiah's wife at all. It must be someone else. Well, perhaps it's referring to Ahaz's son to come, Hezekiah. If you know anything about Hezekiah, when he takes the throne, he does exactly opposite of Ahaz. He opposes the king of Assyria. He stands against his army. God miraculously comes to their, their defense. And by the time he was reigning, both Israel, Syria, the other nations have been taken care of just as God promised. Hezekiah restored worship in the temple. He tore down all of the idolatrous altars all over the land. But even his birth wasn't that miraculous. What kind of sign is that? He, he's doing some good things. So there's this, there's this weird thing going on. Like, I'm expecting something to happen now, but everything that happens doesn't quite fulfill the promise. That's how so much prophecy works. There's an immediate fulfillment, but it just leaves you unsatisfied because there must be something greater. During each, the lives of each of these young guys, we don't see the full promised rescue. We see little elements fulfilled, but it, each of these children keeps bringing us longing for more, looking for a greater son to be born. Even Isaiah tells us a couple chapters later in chapter 9 that we got to think higher, think bigger, guys. Amidst the darkness, when Israel is doomed and wiped out and it's dark up there, amidst that darkness, out of that darkness will come a great light. A child will be born. A son will be given. In his name, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. He's going to take the whole nation, put it on his shoulders, and usher them into eternal peace and righteousness. This isn't someone coming along who's just going to make things a little bit better. 
for a little longer. This guy's going to come and upend the entire way of life of Israel. Even the whole world. He's going to have a divine nature. He will reign from the throne of David and rule with justice and righteousness forever. Isaiah's sons couldn't do that. Hezekiah didn't do that. No, nobody for over 700 years could fit that description. In the meantime, God is taking care of all of the problems. The Assyrians eventually rise a little more and then they fall to the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem. They take the Jews into exile, but then they're taken over by the Persians. All of these kingdoms are weak. God can destroy any of them. At one point, some Jews get to come home, but they still have to live under the authority, the oppression of the Greeks then. And then the Romans. All of this oppression and suffering will continue under every one of them. All of this trouble invited upon the nation by Ahaz's refusal to trust God. But the entire time, there's a faithful remnant who was preserved by looking for that child to come. As long as they kept their eyes on whenever he was coming, even if it didn't come in my generation, I'm keeping my eyes on that promise that God will be with us and preserve us through that child. He'll be with us in exile until he brings us home. He'll be with us under oppression until he secures our freedom. Long, long after then it seemed like David's whole line had failed. Every single king was wicked and the whole royal line died out. And then you turn the page to the New Testament after hundreds of years of silence and Matthew begins with a lineage of the king. They kept track. They kept counting. Sure, it seemed impossible for one of David's offspring to rule under the heavy hand of Rome, but they kept records because God promised a son. He was coming. And then, out of nowhere, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A young man named Joseph, a descendant of David, a descendant of Ahaz, was betrothed to Mary, a beautiful young woman named Mary. She had yet to be with a man. The New Testament uses the word virgin. Matthew 21, or Matthew 1, verse 23 says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. This is the fulfillment of what they longed for for so long. At first, Joseph thought his whole life was ruined and he had to quick get rid of this woman. But then they both have a vision that, no, this is the fulfillment of what God promised to Isaiah. This baby has been conceived miraculously from the Holy Spirit. Finally, 700 years have passed. We've been looking for this sign. And just as promised, he was born of a virgin. Just as was promised, he was in the line of King David. Just as was promised, by the time he was a young man, Israel, Syria are gone. They named him Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves. Truly, he was Emmanuel, God having come to be fully present with us as a human. God in the flesh to save us from our sin. Not just all the problems we have around us, but from the curse that infects even 
our hearts inside of us. God sovereignly orchestrated all of history over hundreds of years, bringing it all together in this one child, Jesus, the very presence of God with us. His birth was one that only God could accomplish. No man can will God to come into flesh through a virgin. The presence of God's spirit meant he had an anointing that no other king in history had. Being born into Joseph's home meant he was in the royal line of David. He has authority as a king. Being born miraculously from God, he avoided the curse that was on David's lineage for being repeated idolaters over and over and over. More than that, he avoided the curse that comes on all of humanity because of Adam's sin being passed down to every one of us. Because of this miraculous virgin birth, Jesus is the only person in history able to live a perfectly righteous life. But he was still human, truly human, born of a real woman. He was tempted in every way we are. He experienced all of the suffering that you face in your life. Yet he was the promised son who would reign forever. He was the promised seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. He was a perfectly righteous man, yet he died on a cross to take away our sin, to defeat Satan, and he rose from the dead to lead every one of us out of our exile, out of every sinful, false dilemma we face. Jesus is the only one who could fill all of those promises. He's the only way out of our dilemmas. Ahaz chose not to trust in the promised virgin-born son of God, and he was doomed he failed to believe and succumb to his faithless choice. We see his self-inflicted judgment in verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Ironic twist here. Despite the guarantee of this coming son to rescue God's people, Ahaz chose to put his faith in another son, the king of another son, the son of another king. He chose to make an alliance with Assyria, thinking he could avoid the trouble by making a deal with the devil. But it was that alliance that would come back and bite the Jewish nation when Assyria would constantly be a threat at their door. And eventually, Babylon comes in and destroys them. When you make a choice in a false dilemma, you're doomed to fail. When you pursue rescue apart from God and his rescue, his wisdom, the thing we put our hope in will become the instrument of our destruction. We see that in our own nation. The more we reject God and pursue all of these other things, these things become the downfall of our society. Every day we're faced with many choices. And oftentimes they feel like we're stuck in one of these would you rather games. Usually the consequences aren't very serious. Occasionally they are. But every time you're presented with a false dilemma and you make one of those choices, you are training yourself to lean on your own understanding. 
to not seek God's wisdom and humble yourself before him. God always has a way out. That's not obvious to us at first. But any other choice than following him will lead us into further trouble. If you're facing a difficult dilemma, God offers you the same sign he gave to Ahaz. Look to the miraculous incarnation of the Son of God as proof that God has all authority over everything and has ways to rescue you that you haven't even thought of. Jesus came into this world to help us escape every dilemma by looking to him. You may think that looking to Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection seems like a silly thing to put your trust in. You've got more logical ways of dealing with your issues. But anything you choose apart from Christ will be your downfall. Looking to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ may not solve your problems the way you think they should be solved. By trusting him, he's giving you a rescue better than anything you can imagine. Like the faithful remnant of Israel, you might still have to face your enemies. You may still need to endure a long exile, but God promises by looking to his son, he will be with you. Your victory is secured. The God who has authority from the depths of the grave to the highest of heaven will be with you. And all your enemies will be revealed as weak in compared to his might. And you'll be comforted in his presence forever. The more you prioritize focus on him and worship on him, the more those 700 years just pass quickly and you will find yourself soon in the presence of our God. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year. It's not just some empty tradition. It's not Routine time to spend with family to break away from the monotony of your work or to get all kinds of great gifts. We celebrate Christmas to cement in our minds the sign that God gave as a promise of his rescue. God gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We celebrate Christmas to remind ourselves that God will accomplish our rescue in ways that show it's clear that he is in control, not our own intellect, not our own cleverness or strength. He shows us a virgin-born son to put us into humility. We celebrate Christmas to remember to simplify our lives by focusing our attention on him in humble worship and accountability with God's people. We celebrate Christmas in order to bury this truth deep into our hearts so that when we face dilemmas, we have trained our hearts to instinctively look to Christ as the way out so that every challenge you face, you can remember that your only escape is through the virgin-born Son of God. Let's pray. God, as we continue to sing these wonderful words of worship to our King Jesus. Help us not forget how he came into this world. That God, the eternal God of the universe, became one of us through an ordinary, faithful woman. He avoided the curse of sin. 
He lived a perfect, righteous life. He died a sacrificial death for us, and he rose from the dead to put death behind him, behind all of us, so that when we trust in him, we know that we have the ultimate escape from every trouble. Help us never to forget the sign of Christ, the Son of God, become one of us to rescue us. May he be glorified in our days, in this season of Advent, as we look forward, we look back to his, his first coming and we look forward to his return when he finally makes all things new. Amen.